Father, thank you for meeting us here again this morning. Thank you for bringing us together for what you have planned for us at this time. We thank you that we take great comfort in knowing that our days, our hours, our minutes are ordered by you and that you are sovereign over all. And then in your grace, you have brought us together to teach us about who you are, who we are, and who we ought to be in Christ. And so we pray that you would do that a little bit more this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be with us, instructing us, giving us knowledge and wisdom about the passage this morning, and drawing us into the beauties of Christ and what the triune God is doing in the body of Christ to make her reflect Christ well. I pray that you be with each of us, shaping our hearts this morning individually and as a group and by extension as a body at Sylvania. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that's renewed every morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 16. Um, we, we did 1 through 10 uh, last time. And the remainder of, of chapter 16 involves Paul's work in Philippi. 1 through 10, if you remember, was the beginning of Paul's uh, sort of second missionary journey, it's called. Those first 10 verses cover a wide range of traveling. And that's really the most traveling we see in the second missionary journey is getting him to Macedonia, getting him to Philippi. Um, and so we're in verse 11. The remainder of 16 involves this work at Philippi. 11 through 15 deal with the journey to Philippi and the conversion of Lydia. 16 through 24 narrate this very interesting story about the healing of a possessed servant girl. That'll be a fun one. Uh, and then uh, the unfortunate result from that. And then you have um, 25 through 34 tell the conversion of the Philippian jailer, and verses 35 through 40 describe this final encounter in Philippi with the leadership of Philippi. So there's a lot going on in the rest of the chapter. Big themes, big issues uh, to deal with. However, this morning I'd like to cover 11 through 15 because there are two very major issues here, and I don't want to just gloss over them. Uh, they're put here for a reason, and um, I think we should discuss them. So let's go to the text, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So it starts out, verse 11, 12, pretty simple. Travel time, right? And he gives us sort of this brief overview that Luke is famous for, of glossing over really... The, he's not interested in details. He wants to get you to the plot, right? He wants to get you to what's going on. And so scholars tell us that this journey, this travel that he did by sea must have been uh, under some pretty good weather because they hit Samothrace the first day they're seeing it. And it's really fast for ship travel at that time. Um, it's not that easy coming back, and we'll see that in chapter 20. It takes them a long time. Weather's bad. Some issues come up. But this time they have really... They have fair wind, good sail, and there they are. <laughs> then, when they get to fill, uh, they're, they're, they get to land, they take about a ten-mile trek to Philippi along a Roman road called the Via Ignatia. The only reason I bring it up, the only reason I bring it up, is because it it reminds me of Inigo Montoya, the Via Ignatia. <laughs> That's really the only reason. This is a road, it's a common road, Roman road, you know how they built the roads. And this is one that's used by Paul a lot in his journeys. It's a big road, it's protected, it's, it's a good, safe travel kind of place. Uh, and so they go to Philippi. Morning. Uh, Philippi, I mean, since we're going to be here the rest of the chapter, probably I'll talk about the town. Uh, it has a very ancient history. Uh, it was... Deposit, uh, the, it was deposited. It was settled in ancient times because of the gold and copper deposits are there, the kind of a mining community. Um, it was conquered by uh, Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And he expanded it, expanded the gold mining opportunity that he had there. If you're a king, you want lots of gold, apparently. So he, he thought that was a, a good prize. Um, and it was it produced gold for the Greeks until about uh, 168 when the Roman domination came. And so the cool thing, how many of you uh, in high school, low those uh, many moons ago, studied um, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar? You remember? Who, who, uh, who killed him? Who was one of the guys that killed him? Do you remember the big phrase? Et tu brute, right? Uh, and who was the loyal guy? The speech you had to memorize and recite in front of your class, maybe, if you had that at the time. Who was the guy that gave the speech? Friends, Romans, countrymen. Uh, who was it? Mark Antony. Mark Antony. So Antony. Uh, not the guy from, from uh, Ant-Man. Um, so Mark Antony gave the speech. He was loyal to Caesar. Um, and then you had Brutus, who was a compatriot of Caesar, but kill, ended up thinking he was becoming too much dictator and killed him. Shakespeare gives us a real tragic view of it, probably really just a lust for power anyway. At the end of the play, at the end of the historical time, do you remember what happens? Uh, I believe Brutus dies as well. How? Uh, I, he might kill himself? I don't remember. No, there was no suicide with Brutus. Good guess, though, because that's usually how Shakespearean play ends. Um, <laughs> there was, however, a big battle. Antony and Octavius, which is another cool name, uh, are on one side, and Brutus and Cassius are on the other, and they come to a head in battle, guess where? At the plains south of Philippi, right? So there's this huge historical 
uh, significance of the city of Philippi. It bears the name of Philip of Macedonia. It has this, and this happened in like the 40s BC, okay? We're in about 40, 50 AD here. That's about a 70 to 90 year window. So it's close enough that people have been told about this. Not only told, they probably got a grandparent yeah. that, was, that was there who was still telling them about the Korean War. <laughs> right? I mean, that's within the time frame. That's how recent this stuff is going on. This massive, huge historical stuff is going on in Philippi. At this time, uh, just to, spoiler alert, Antony and, and Octavius win the battle. Brutus and Cassius are slaughtered, and their armies are slaughtered. And, so they, and then there's a fight between Antony and Octavius. Octavius wins. He becomes Caesar Augustus. In the, year of, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a census was called. That's, that's where all this is going on. So a huge historical uh, uh, site in Philippi. And a lot of military veterans settled in Philippi. So you got a major Roman influence there. They were granted colony status. And, and, and Luke makes mention of that. It's one of the few cities that, that have colony status. Luke actually makes mention of it. And the, and the reason that that's important is because they've got no taxes. Would to God that Washington would grant Texas colony status. No taxes, right? And then they also have um, the ability to govern themselves. They have an autonomous government. They're not beholden to anybody. They're not beholden to Rome and how they run their place. Massive freedom, but it's a, it's a huge Roman influence. And you see this not only here in the text with Luke, but in Paul's letters to, to the Philippians, you see a, a, a very Roman influence on his, on his writing. He's appealing to the Roman sensibilities. We're going to see that that's very important later on in chapter 16. Uh, so Luke calls this, um, this city a leading city in the district of Macedonia, the leading city in the district of Macedonia. And that's not entirely accurate if you look at city size. There was another, there was another uh, city that was larger and had been the capital of that area for a while. Uh, but given the historical context of this city and the part that it had played in world events, that wasn't, that wasn't I mean, that's a fair point. It was a leading city or the leading city in, in the area. So, oh, the other thing, because they're a colony, this is also important, all of the citizens of the city of Philippi were Roman citizens. They were not subject to the, 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 the foreigner status. They were all considered Roman citizens being in that city. So big deal, big benefit of being a Philippian. All right, verses 13 and 15. Given that background, given that Paul comes to this very favored, very historical Roman city, where would he normally go? Synagogue. He'd go to a synagogue. Does he hear? No. Why? They didn't have one. In order to get a synagogue, the rabbis made it a rule that you had to have 10 Jewish men to make, to, 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 to form, to, to, I guess, create the seed group. I don't know what you call that. They had to have 10 men in order to constitute a synagogue, to right? To make it official. You had to have 10 men. In fact, they said you could have nine men, and there weren't enough women on the planet that could fill the 10th man's role. You had to have, nine, you had to have 10 men. 
what does that tell you about how Jewish thought of the day viewed women? All the women are doing this. How, how does that what does that tell you about Jewish thought about women in the day? Obviously, they didn't think of them very highly because they weren't used, uh, they weren't, they weren't uh, valued that way to make a synagogue. So, where does he go? Riverside. Why would he go to the riverside? Place of prayer. Place of prayer. What does that mean? Down to the river to pray? <laughs> Learn about that good old way? Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay, so, so what, what, why would he go down there? We go on with that song for this one. Besides the symbolism, uh, maybe it was just a quiet place. Quiet place. Maybe that's where the Jews gathered. And there's some thought for that. It was a quiet place. They gathered near water because a lot of the Jewish rites had water involved in them. Um, if they're women mainly, if they're women only, it seems like here. In fact, the text seems to indicate that they're mainly Gentile women. God-fearers. So you have this situation where Romans are very suspicious of foreign cults. Judaism was an official religion. They, they recognized that. But there was no formal official synagogue to represent Judaism. And you have these women who are not Jews praying to the God of the Jews. That's kind of suspect. So they meet outside the city. And they go to the river... Um, so there was a kind of a synagogue. A, Paul basically finds the closest thing he can to a synagogue here. And it's, the text seems to say it's all women. Um, the place of prayer, the term place of prayer, often refers to a synagogue, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a building there. It just kind of, it, it, Luke seems to grant these women the um, the... I guess the respect of, yes, they were meeting there as God-fearing uh, you know, God Gentiles as if it were a synagogue. So they're going, they go down to this river. They sit down. And that time when you sat down in the midst of people, uh, you were the teacher. And they stood. Things are very different. Very different. <laughs> so they sit down taking the posture of teachers and they speak to the women there. What does that tell you about Paul and his companions. They don't discriminate. They have 21st century standards. <laughs> what does that tell you? I mean, compare that to what the rabbis taught. They're continuing the theme that we've seen throughout this whole thing. Is it's, uh, it's everybody. It's not just Jewish men, Jews in general. It's, right. You know. You know everybody. I forget the text it says, but now he calls everybody to repentance. Right. And that's that's his mission. So up till now, we've kind of seen the thrust, the the um, the big barrier that's been overcome is between Jew and Gentile, right? The, I don't want to put extra burdens on you Gentiles. This is not a condition for salvation that you become Jews. And now you see this thrust here of the next barrier is one of gender. 
the worth and value of women in the first century, do you think just from what you know of that time period, is that probably a, a, a huge thing, you know, the value women in the first century? Granted, the Greeks and Romans did allow women to divorce. They were allowed to sign legal documents. They were allowed to run businesses. So there was some freedom, but it wasn't the type of freedom that we're talking about here. They're going to them as equal worth. They're going to them as made in the image of God. They need Jesus. That's how Paul and his friends are approaching this. Um, especially Gentile women. So you bring in the whole Jew-Greek thing and also the male-female thing. And Paul would come to them in the spirit of what he writes in Galatians 2, uh, 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. When he says all are one in Christ Jesus, what does he mean? What does that mean? Of equal standing before God. Of equal standing before God. In what way? I mean, he also says, let women keep silent in the church. What does that mean? How is that consistent? All are one. One how? Christ died for all. We're all equally sinful, and Christ died for all. Okay, so we're all equally sinful. Christ died for both men and women, Jew and Greek. Which implies what? How are they valued? Made in the image of God, just like a man. Made in the image of God. All have equal worth. But that doesn't necessarily comment on the roles that he's called us to do because there are clearly differences, right? That's a confusing concept, I think, in our culture today. There's worth, there's dignity because of the image of God, bearing the image of God for male and female, but there are differences, and God created those differences not as a measure of worth, but to complement and display something very unique about himself. And what is that? His community. In his own being, he's community. The son is the same worth as the father, is the same worth as the spirit. And yet in their roles, I only speak with what my father tells me to speak. I submit to my father in all things. doesn't mean that the worth of Christ is less than the worth of the father. They're both the same being of God. But the roles are different. And so God, in His wisdom, creates a creature that is complementary, like He Himself has complementary persons. All right. Um, the, the roles may be different. Husband is the head of the wife. Wives submit to the husbands. Those are fighting words in a lot of places these days. So I'm in dad mode this morning. So this is free. This is, just, just take it as it is. Paul doesn't say, wives submit to husbands, 
and, and, and husbands uh, is head of the wife. It doesn't say any man is the head of any woman. Does it? Do we got that? Okay. Uh, any woman is to submit to any man. That, that's not what he's saying. That submission in that way is a specific role in marriage. It's not... So here's, here's my dad role. Women, if any man other than your husband, or if you're still minor, your father, tries to convince you that you are under his headship in that way, he is a boy and a fool and you should run. And I'm pulling this not from anything recent. Don't think, oh, who's doing that? No, I'm not. I'm just saying. It has been an issue in the long time ago. And I just want to clarify, because it's been a while since we had this discussion. If any man says to any girl, well, I'm, where's my sandwich? You know, uh, if any man says, he's a boy and a fool, run. Also, any single woman who can't take care of herself outside of her house but has to rely on a man to take care of her car, etc., needs a little self-examination. We're not called to those dependent roles as singles. We're not called. Now, there's a difference in kindness and expectation. If this guy wants to come over and mow your yard, let him mow your yard. Make him a sandwich, you know. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's giving. That's kindness. That's submitting one to another. But expecting those in a dating relationship, oh my gosh, how dangerous. That's idolatry. Don't do that. In the same way, men, any woman you are dating who would put you, uh, put on you the responsibility of serving her as if you were her servant leadership type husband, She's a little girl and a fool, and you should run. It's a, if it, that's not the role. Does that make sense? That's not the role. Um, also, any man who cannot make himself a sandwich but has to rely on a woman to feed him needs to do a little self-examination. Get a little curious for your stomach's sake. Um, buy a Betty Crocker cookbook. It's a, it can be, uh, one ca caveat on that, be very careful with curry. <laughs> I'm saying, uh, we had, a, new, we had a, a deli marketplace smell in our house for like, I don't know how long I did curry. Be very careful, but be curious for your stomach's sake. That will benefit you, and if you get married, it'll benefit your wife. There's a difference in accepting a kindness and being lost in, in very basic things without the help of someone of the opposite sex. Get a little curious and get it done. The being, uh, ending rant, okay? That's my, that's my end of rant. Being of the same worth in Christ is a great freedom, but it also is a great responsibility. Um, all right, so Lydia. Luke, thank you. <laughs> Luke highlights one event in particular, the conversion of a woman named Lydia. What does he tell us about her? What do we know about her from Luke's vast, vast uh, treatise on Lydia? What, what does he tell us? She smells purple goods. She smells purple goods. What else? Where's fear of God? She's a she's a fear of God. Where's she from? Thyatira. All right. A little bit more history and geography. Uh, Thyatira is where she's from. 
known for their purple goods, they, 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 of, of being a, a marketer of or source of this purple dye, they either extract it out of some seashell or they extract it out of a root. They'd perfected this and they were known for producing this. She's marketing that. What is purple? Fabrics in the, in the first century. What, what do, it's, a, it's royal colors, right? So what would that imply that she's involved in? She's either very skilled or very wealthy from actually like being able to buy and sell this stuff. And that's exactly right. If she's buying and selling purple fabrics, it means that she is a, she's got the quan. She is very well, uh, well off as a woman uh, and she's selling this stuff she's and 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 anyway that's Thyatira she's there she's a god fear Thyatira had a pretty uh, predominant Jewish community there so it's thought by many people that she became aware of uh, Jehovah there and and was uh, sort of uh, interested and and fearing um, the one God but she was not a full Jewish convert why add the detail that she's a seller of purple. What's the what's the big deal with that? So what? I think like the stereotype of that time was that the only people interested in Christianity and anything of that type were the poor, the weak, and destitute. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it shows here that there were wealthy. In fact, you'll see this later on in chapter 16 and in 17 uh, and, and 18, actually. There, there are several women that support Paul's ministry. Philippians, the Philippians are particularly noted for this. They're known among Paul's, the churches that Paul dealt with as being incredibly generous, incredibly supportive. Um, he, uh, Philippians 4, 15 through 18, I, I commend it to you to read. He talks about their generosity and how they supported him uh, in his need, and, were, and he is satisfied based on their, their gifts. And a lot of it is, they think, Lydia led. Uh, she, uh, she was very generous, as we see in this passage, she was very generous. Um, all right. Why in the world, here, now we're getting to it, why in the world would a rich woman believe what this strange traveler who just showed up to the Riverside meeting had to say. Why? The Lord opened her heart. The same God who called Paul to Macedonia, come help us, remember the dream he had? Gave him the first convert in Europe, Lydia. And Luke doesn't bat an eye describing it this way. Doesn't even hesitate, doesn't stumble, doesn't use dot, 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 doesn't do anything. The Lord opened her heart. None of the New Testament writers bat an eye at this. They all describe it this way. Uh, it's just assumed the Spirit gives faith and repentance. So you look at Acts uh, 5.31. We've already seen this with Peter when, he, when he's preaching. He says, God exalted him, Christ, at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Um, and just in case you're wondering if he only moved that way sovereignly with Jews, uh, Peter says it again in Acts 11:18. 18. Uh, after he gives them the testimony of Cornelius, the, the people respond. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's Acts 11:18. 18. 
uh, Paul says it this way, for it has been granted to the Philippians, by the way, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name. Philippians 1.29. Who granted? It's been granted to you by whom? God did. Notice also it says he granted them suffering, not only to believe, but also to suffer. As Christmas gifts, I'm thinking which... <laughs> Uh, I read an article this morning, Johnny Erickson Tata, been in the chair 50 years this weekend, anniversary of her, you know, if you know who that is. She uh, was 17, uh, dove into shallow Chesapeake Bay uh, and uh, b- severed her spinal cord, her neck, paraplegic, no, quadriplegic, her entire life. Every morning, uh, a group of women have to come in and tend to her body every day, brush her teeth, comb her hair, get her dressed, wash her, everything. She's completely dependent. If she wants to hit the snooze, she can't. Well, she got people scheduled to come in. She's dependent upon their, their schedules for them to get her up. She's dependent upon them to do everything for her. She's in chronic pain constantly, had breast cancer, stage three, you know, was, was dealt with all that. Chronic pain, 50 years in the chair. Rejoicing in Jesus. How do you do that? Because God has granted to her not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Right? Don't ever... uh, (laughs) Well, let me sit this way. If we say that, uh, God, we're glad we got that worked out. Aren't you glad that I believed? We can also say, hey, uh, I'm checking out. If it's dependent on me, I'm gone already. I'm kept by Him. You're kept by Him. And thank God, even in the most incredibly difficult circumstances, He keeps us kept. Um, all right. And we go on. It, it's stuff like this. I mean, I got oodles. We go through all kinds of stuff. It's stuff like this, the testimony of the text and these kinds of passages that, that are just the tip of the iceberg of the massive amount of evidence of why I am a Calvinist. I'll just come out. There it is. Uh, I am. It's because of stuff like this. How do you deal with that? It says it so directly, so clearly. God changes dead hearts to life. That's what it says. Um, If every Christian is a byproduct or a product of the creative work of the Holy Spirit, granting us belief where there is only unbelief, how could Paul ever think of women as less than in value any more than he could think of Gentiles as less than in value. Because of the way we're born into this thing, it, has a t- it sets a tone for all of us and how we relate to one another. D- does that make sense? Equal value, equal worth, because of what Christ has done. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature, old things have passed away. Guess what? We're all created in Him. Um, all right. He'd write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Ephesians 4. We're all of equal value and worth in Christ. And so after the Lord opens her heart, He gave her a new heart. What does Luke tell us? What happens to her? Baptized. She's baptized, and who else? Household. Her whole household. Gosh, that's sticky. Who's in that household? Well, first of all, she's running a household. Take note of that. She's running a household, and her first act 
as a person who is converted is to be a missionary to her own household. Such that, it says in the text, all the household was converted. Servants, maybe some family was there. Uh, we see this in another, um, in another uh, uh, place in this chapter, verse 33, the Philippian jailer. Uh, also, his whole household is converted and believes. And just spoiler alert for that's coming. Um, are infants here? Do we see infants here? This is a text that's used often. This is the first time household is narrated. Cornelius, it's assumed, but the first time we see household was baptized. Not seeing infants here. This is, if so, it's an argument of, of silence. There are other arguments that my dear Presbyterian friends will make, but I don't think you make it from this one. Um, anyway, just, yes, ma'am. So it talks about she was a worshiper of God, then the Lord opened her heart, so maybe she, we think she believed in God, and then she heard the gospel, and then Christ, and then baptized, so I'm just wondering, like, capital G God, before. Yeah. She was certainly, if anything, I think the, 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 um, the stony heart may have been moistened, <laughs> may have gotten some flooding from, uh, but it's still Judaism. It's not the gospel. I, I, I think if you, if you think back to the Old Testament, how were people saved? Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that Shilin says before. <laughs> uh, we in here we call him Shy of Lynn. Before the cross, <laughs> they were saved on credit. After the cross, they've been saved on debit. Ah, nice. So after hearing and the it gospel, rhymes. <laughs> after hearing the gospel, she I can now, I can hear the backbeat to that one. On debit, but she was always saved. Right. You know because because she was elect. Yeah. But well. She was but marked. Was she was marked. She was marked out to be saved. We want to be careful with that. We yeah, 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 that's yeah, yeah. She she was she was predestined to salvation. Exactly. But we're getting now, in all in now. Well, without aren't we? hearing the gospel of Jesus, right? Like she was always convicted of sinfulness and understood right. that God forgives. Right. But how? But how? And through whom? And through whom? Right. He forgives. Who are these prophets she, she testifying about? So right. Whenever, so whenever she hears about Jesus. It's obvious. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And as a Gentile, hearing that there's freedom in Christ and you don't have to, uh, he's not calling them to be Jews. They can still maintain their Thyatira-ness. Right. right. They're still able to, to maintain their identity and yet their identity is new, renewed in Christ. Um, all right. So, America. All right, so you have uh, uh, Lydia getting baptized. There's the whole whole household thing, which is which is a fun a fun conversation. Uh, then what does she do? What does she do then? She invites them over to her house. She invites them over to her house. She apparently again we see she has some means if she can invite four guys over, have their own guest rooms, have a servants attend, all this kind of stuff. There's there's still you know, this indicates she has means. What is a language that Luke uses to describe her invitation? She prevailed. She urged and she prevailed. So already she's exercising the female spiritual gift of persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> or the, the, the female gift of, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, 
I am. I am. I, I'm gonna no. I was gonna say uh, dedication to the end goal. Uh, oh yeah, hospitality. Um, so there's that one. All right. So she urges them. She prevailed. Uh, she's persistent. That's the word I'm looking for. What does the need for her persuasion, though, tell us about Paul? Why does she need to persuade him? What is, what is, why would, they'd already gotten there before the Sabbath that they were going to go to the river to pray. They were already set up in town. They had a place to stay. Why would she need to persuade him to come to um, better accommodations? Yes? Wasn't there some kind of Levitical law that says if you stay with a Gentile that you're unclean or... Yeah, but I mean, he's already dealt with that, right? I mean, the, the Jerusalem Council kind of dealt with that issue. Yeah, he, he's been going, going from Gentile city to Gentile city for the longest time now. I don't think it actually matters. Yeah, I don't... I, I, yes, you're right, but that was kind of... That's, that's uh, earlier dealt with that. Why do you think he... What's... what's why wouldn't he say, sure, you got a pool table, let's go. Why wouldn't he say that? Didn't want to impose. Didn't want to impose? What else? Isn't he always thinking about the next city? Or, like, where, where um, should I go next? When he goes to a city, he's not really looking to kick back, I guess. Hey, he's not looking to mooch, maybe? He's not looking to be seen as somebody who, who's not taking care of his own stuff? He says this later. When I came to you, I worked. I made tents. I didn't want to burden any of you with my living expenses. And here you have this incredibly generous woman. It's like, oh, but I don't want to. That's the heart that a minister should have. Not every time you go to lunch with me, I expect you to pay. Right? And I thank God Philip is not that. I'm not, again, nobody here. I'm not, but I've seen that. It drives me insane. I want to point him back to Paul. Um, there's no expectations. I had a, many, 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 many years ago, people you don't even know, I had a guy uh, say one time, hey, I was playing keyboard with the band. He goes, hey, you need this kind of keyboard or whatever, or this pedal or whatever. I know what tree to shake. Well, it was a music guy, but but I, I'm like, no, we don't. I don't ever. I'll go buy it myself. I, we're not gonna have any part of that. This is this is the attitude of service that a minister should have, a missionary, a pastor. Not that they don't receive kindness. He had to be persuaded to receive kindness, right? Persuaded to do it. Um, all right, she made there acceptance of her hospitality a test of whether they believe she had become a believer come see for yourself that's persuasion all right uh, again with Lydia we see that she not only opens her home as a gathering place for the entire Christian uh, not not just has them come over but she opens it up for the entire Christian community in verse 40 we see that that uh, she has everybody come over she doesn't lay claim to her stuff, but freely shares it with the family of Christ. And that's consistent with what we saw in Jerusalem early on, right? They, they divvy their goods up as each one had need. She immediately has that heart to give out of her abundance. And women like Lydia are particularly prominent in this position, uh, in this portion of Acts, in relation to Paul's ministry. Um, you see women like Priscilla and Lydia who take an active role in the ministry of their churches. It's 10.10. What do we do with that? 
<laughs> women taking active role in the leadership of their churches. Oh, it was Phoebe. Sounds feminine to me. So you have Paul. Women are of equal worth as men. And then he says something crazy like this to Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I, I think right there Paul is indicting Baptists. One, they don't lift their hands, and one, they're always angry and quarreling. Uh, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Oh my goodness. What do you do with that? But I thought there's no male or female in Christ. What's going on there? I don't know. Like Is it... It's to guard against domineering women taking control over Maybe. <laughs> Carefully say maybe. Go ahead. I think, does that have to do with the culture? I mean, in our minds, when we say, like, oh, that's disrespectful to a woman and these these roles like versus if we talk to a first century woman she probably like i i don't know maybe yeah that's what is he what okay in that passage everybody first turn to first the first timothy chapter two turn to first timothy chapter two do a bible drill this morning in the next three minutes you know what i won't think about it we'll talk about it next week How's that? Is that good? What? And I want you to think about I want you to think about as we go through 1 Timothy 2, 8 through uh, 15, think about what does he mean by silent? Is there any, any indication in that passage of what he means by silence? What does he mean by teach? Why would he why would he cue in on that? What does he mean by authority? What, are the, what is he talking about? Just do a little Bible study this week. Let's do that. I think it's a wonderful idea. Because I don't have time to go through this. We'll, do, we'll pick it up next week. We'll find out. We'll have a good old discussion on the role of women in church. David Platt has a, has a sermon on Don't cheat. Oh. I'm just saying. <laughs> is there, is there he, had, he has a sermon. <laughs> There's probably a Shylin one too. Yeah, I think it's in. I think it's in stories. I think he talks about it. But um, but don't cheat. Um, no, just think about that, because and think of it in terms of this way. There's culture and there's biblical. Right? What does the Bible tell us about the role of gender? How is that supposed to look biblically? And what is the culture adding upon us to do? What? Showing my cards. No. 
Well, maybe. <laughs> I just want to be textual. Let's be textual. Um, all right. That's where we are. That's what, we'll stop there. That's a great idea. We don't normally do this. So homework it is. Homework it is. Uh, and feel free to, uh, to post your thoughts on the Facebook page. And let's have a good old Facebook discussion and make sure it's real good and contentious. It's awkward next week. As long as it's, as long as it's respect. <laughs> yeah, it won't be. Facebook invites acrimony. Remember, anger and... Uh, Yeah, you gotta look them in the face and tell them what you just thought. <laughs> it's much better to be fake in person. Um, yeah, just, to, just make sure your cap's button is off. All right, that's the deal. Second Timothy, First uh, Timothy two eight through fifteen. Those are the questions. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you've given us a text that we don't have to guess at this. That in our sinfulness, a lot of times, uh, we, we impose on ourselves more uh, than you have required of us. Lord, help us to find the boundaries that you've set and live freely within them. God, I thank you that all of this is wrought by the humility of Christ. That he submitted and was obedient to your authority. And in his obedience, he bought a nation. He bought a people, and He gives life to whom He will, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, or free. All are one and valuable and worth, not because they're worthy in and of themselves, because Romans tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God and are worthless. But our worth is because Christ has deemed us worthy. He's bought us, and His blood gives us worth. Your image gives us worth. And though we've scarred it and marred it, I pray that you continue to form in us the things that we see are so beautiful in Christ because of what you've given us in your scripture. Help us to reflect that rightly. Help, help us to be receptive to your word. I pray that in the next service that we would see Christ glorified, magnified, not only from the pulpit, but in our own hearts. Holy Spirit, work in us that way, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.